starting at chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Anon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight. that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. As for me... Where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he wouldn't listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. 
After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? And Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. I have, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king rose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants were standing by, tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant has said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihad, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Uh, What we are going to watch today is truly a godless story, uh, made loud and clear by the fact that God isn't even mentioned here. And I love that the Bible doesn't pretend like things like this don't happen. Um, And we should be really grateful for that. God doesn't airbrush out difficult things. The scriptures teach us about reality. Today might feel horrid to hear. But let's not forget, this is God's word. It will be good for us, even profitable for us. We've often visited David's last words this series, haven't we? Chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. What's it like to live under a good and a just king who fears the Lord? Well, it's, it's like um, you know, sunshine on our faces, like rain that makes the grass grow. It's life itself. Bless you. Well, this section feels like the exact opposite of that, doesn't it? Last week I was reading C.S. Lewis, who described life under a false king like this. Strikes me he must have had two Samuel in his mind. Uh, Living under a false king is as if the sun rose one day 
and it was a black sun. Or as if we drank water and it was dry water. And that's today's feelings. A black sun, dry water. As we watch these potential messiahs in David's sons, it feels like a black sun dawning on us and like gulping down dry water that can never quench our thirst. Before we dive in, we need some context. Uh, We need to remember that there is real tension in the air at this point. There are two promises in play as we come into chapter 13. Firstly, chapter 7 verse 15 is very much in play. God said his steadfast love will never, ever again depart from David's kids like God's love um, left Saul. We'll see why that promise is so under threat today when we see what David's kids are really like. But also, secondly, chapter 12, verse 10, the second promise in play, the sword will never depart from David's house. Do you remember last week? Uh, King David slept with another man's wife. Uh, Then he murdered the wife's husband to cover his tracks. Well, God said, because of that, the sword will always, always swing through David's family until he dies. This is far more than just family feuds. This is promise of swords swinging to kill each other. These are the two promises we need to hold on to as we dive in today. Today we're going to recoil at the absolute horror of sin. Chapter 13, it's the first chapter in this book that isn't really about David at all. Uh, The focus is on his two sons, which is very telling, actually. Uh, Verse 1, Absalom and Amnon are, quote, David's sons, both of them. They are David's through and through, like chips off the old block. And the deja vu feeling today is very strong as we watch the sons follow in their father's footsteps. So let's take Amnon first. Amnon copies his daddy. Just like dad did in chapter 11, now just two chapters later, Amnon sees a woman and he loves her. I say woman, it's his sister. And it says love. Clearly it's not love. Just look at his complaint at the end of verse 2. Did you see that? It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say to marry or to be with her or even to tend to her, but to do to her. So sinister. This is infatuation, objectification, self-gratification. But Amnon can't get what he wants. Though Amnon does have a friend, Jonadab. I'm going to say friend, he he was Amnon's cousin, and and what's more, turns out cousin Jonadab had no moral compass, and for some reason he wants to charm Amnon. Maybe because Amnon was heir to the throne, better get in the good books before Amnon becomes king, thinks Jonadab. And Jonadab is very crafty, verse 3, literally shrewd. He's the kind of friend you want on your sales team. He'll get the job done. And so with craft... And no moral compass. He had the initiative without integrity. And therein lies the problem. 
See, Jonadab uses his craft for evil. See, what did Amnon need here? He needed now, what he needed now above all was a good friend to warn him of sin. He needed someone to tell him the truth, not endorse a lie. So a plan is hatched. Simple enough. Jonadab says to Amnon, get Tamar to look after you when you're sick. You look haggard enough every morning. The acting won't take much. But the key to the plan comes with involving King David. If Amnon abuses daddy's power, Tamar won't be able to say no. And frankly, David is too blind to see any potential threat. The trap is laid and it's hard to watch. The next few minutes might feel really uncomfortable to hear. The narrative is painfully slow. Did you feel it? Verse 8. It's like the ominous soundtrack kicks in. Every detail of the scene is spelled out so slowly. So Tamar went to her brother's house where he was lying down. Just feel the false pretenses of that. Tamar probably thought she was there to make his favorite cakes that they had when they were kids together, to comfort him when he was inconsolable. But little did she know. Second half of verse 8, we're in the kitchen, and it's extraordinary narration. We're about to see a scene of rape, and we're given a step-by-step guide to how she makes this cake. She took the dough, kneaded it, made cakes. Did you spot? In his sight, and baked the cakes. Amnon is there, watching her every move, watching her hands, picking up the dough, her hands so lovingly kneading it. Whilst Amnon just watches, knowing what he's about to do. Tamar has no idea. Verse 9, she presents the cake, but his appetite has apparently suddenly gone. So he demands that everyone leaves, a little dramatic, But he is ill and he is the prince. And Tamar doesn't resist. This is her half-brother after all. No reason to suspect anything. Verse 10. They're alone. He beckons her closer. I need to eat from your hand. I suppose it's plausible that he was, if he was that sick... He might not have had the strength to lift his hand to his mouth. But verse 11, when she was finally within touching distance, he took hold of Tamar, not just to touch her, but as Tamar puts it in verse 12, to violate her. Verse 11, the pretense is suddenly gone and Amnon is actually honest for the very first time. He unmasks himself. Come, lie with me, my sister. In the story so far, Amnon has been described three times as lying on his bed, feigning illness. The demand to lie with me suddenly stops the acting and destroys any appearance of innocence. And Tamar's objection is the strongest imaginable, but her logic in the heat of the moment is exquisite. No, my brother... Reminding him of the incest. Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. In other words, 
God's people don't do this sort of thing. Do not do this outrageous thing. Verse 12 is about doing the right thing. Verse 13 is about the implications of doing the wrong thing. As for me. In other words, besides all that right and wrong stuff, spare a thought for me. If you loved me as a sister, then just think, where would I carry my shame? She continues and reverses the logic. And as for you, in other words, if you don't care about me, which you might not, clearly, care about yourself. If you would be as one of those, you would be as one of those outrageous fools in Israel. She has yet one more thing to say and a last-ditch plea. Knowing the grip, literally, with which Amnon now has her, she even desperately tries to buy herself some time to chat to King David. And even though a potential marriage would have obviously been illegal, perhaps she is just trying to delay the inevitable and involve the king who she trusts would do the right thing to protect her. Maybe bringing up King David now might loosen Amnon's predatory grip. And don't miss the irony of Tamar's words. Verse 12, for such a thing is not done in Israel, true. That is God's intention. And yet just two chapters ago, this very thing was done by Israel's own king. Her logic, impeccable, but her audience was the fool that she has described. So verse 14, such painful reading. He would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Physical strength one. Amnon did to Tamar what Amnon wanted to do back in verse two, to do to her. Verse 14 is so brutal, isn't it? Clinical, cold-blooded, incestuous, forceful rape. Even the end of the verse literally reads, lay with her. Not like that. No, it reads like this. It goes, he lay her. He lay her. There is no with in what Amnon did to Tamar. He raped her. Brutal and brief. The words almost reflecting the act. He lay her. There's not much more that can be said. Then, in a psychology which is not unusual in these kinds of acts, he suddenly hated her more than he ever loved her. With this horrific act of incestuous rape, everything is turned upside down. Before, in verse 1, Amnon loved Tamar, After, in verse 15, he hates her. Before, in verse 9, Amnon ordered his servants out so he could be alone with Tamar. Afterwards, in verse 17, he orders them back so they can now remove Tamar. Before, in verse 11, he said, come lie with me while she begged to leave. Afterwards, in verse 15, he reverses this and says, get up and get out whilst Tamar begs to stay. Actually, verse 17, Amnon's request to remove Tamar is literally, get this out of here. 
To Amnon, Tamar is an object to be discarded. Then verse 20, Absalom is back in the frame. The one who we started with actually in verse 1, why are we suddenly back with him now? Well, Absalom sees what's going on, of course. It's hard to miss what's happened to your sister. Verse 19, Tamar is a desolate woman, broken beyond repair. Nobody could miss that. So Absalom says to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Absalom's anger seems so considered, doesn't it? Don't take this to heart, Tamar. But ironically, that's precisely what Absalom does himself. He hides his anger away. We started with Amnon's love, and now we've moved to Absalom's hate, which leads to murder. Absalom, just like Amnon, follows in his father's footsteps, and here commits murder. He carefully arranges events, verse 28, so that his servants can kill Amnon in revenge. The instructions Absalom gives are chilling, clinical, as if he was a commander of an army to strike the enemy. And there's no doubt that Absalom saw this as honorable. Absalom can't see what this really is. Cold-blooded, vengeful murder. The incestuous rape leads to vengeful murder. But why? Why did it all happen? Where did it all come from? It all happens because King David is so compromised. David fails here on so many levels. We felt the deja vu nature of these stories as the chips off the old block did as their fathers did before them. But let's just quickly skim back through the story and spot what David does, or more to the point, what David doesn't do. His first involvement, verse 6 and 7, we might think are innocent from David. When hearing his son's request, what should David have done? Perhaps we think it would be unreasonable to expect David to stop this request from being granted. But David knows his own heart and what it's like. And he must know his son's hearts and what they're like. A wise king would have seen straight through the request and protected his daughter. No, Amnon, your sister does not need to spoon feed you. Grow up. If that was a lot to expect of David to spot, by verse 21, any patience we might have for David has evaporated. Verse 21, initially it sticks out like a piece of good news, doesn't it? Verse 21, David hears of everything and he is very angry. Too right. Of course he should be. But the surprise is that nothing more happens. Did you feel that? By verse 23, David's let two full years pass by. And David's done nothing. David is so compromised that he can't carry out justice anymore, despite this anger he has. And did you spot that Tamar is never described here as David's daughter? Isn't that heartbreaking? She obviously was, but she's never described as such. Point being, 
Tamar should have received protection from her daddy. David should have been bursting into Amnon's bedroom in verse 13 and saving his daughter from rape. Yet David was no obstacle to his own son's wickedness, not even to protect his own daughter. I wonder if David might have even tried a father-son chat, heart-to-heart chat with Amnon at some point. Perhaps it went something like this. Amnon, we need to talk about Tamar. Amnon brushes it off. Oh, shut up, Dad. Like you can talk. Now that David was himself an adulterer and a murderer, what can he do to stop his children? Even by the end of verse 37, after Absalom has murdered Amnon, David is so busy mourning for Amnon day after day after day after day, it goes on till the end of his death, that he lets Absalom just run away from facing justice. David, until the day he dies, is in a state of mourning for his son, so much so that the rest of the book just kind of just happens to him. His lack of integrity failed to keep his sons from repeating his sins. David can't restrain his sons because he is now so compromised. All his moral authority has been eroded. Like a helpless bystander, he watches his children make all his mistakes after him. Now, as we come into land, let's see how this has moved on the story so uh, forward. On one level, this chapter puts Absalom in the driving seat for the rest of the book. The story of Amnon's so-called love leads to Absalom's deep-seated hatred, and that hatred sparks the remaining narrative into flame. David's house is, as promised, experiencing the sword. Absalom's hatred is what tears David's kingdom apart. It is the human means by which God executes his judgment. The sword shall never depart. If you like how Matt put it earlier, was so right. David's sin in chapter 11 was the stone being thrown into the lake. It made a big splash. So that even that stone or that sin, if you like, could be retrieved. David repented and God forgave him. The ongoing impact and the ripples of David's sins will never ever be stopped. Chapter 13 is only the first ripples from David's sin. But it does more than just move the story forward. This chapter forces us to stare at the horror of sin and recoil. We must look at this episode of sin, look at how deceptive temptation can be, especially sexual temptation, And learn from sin's misery. We'd be bigger fools than Amnon to think that we were unable to fall in similar ways. Be under no illusion. Sin wrecks everything. And it is always crouching outside our doors. But to only think of the horror of sin from this text would be slightly to miss the point. This is the story of David's offspring. These aren't just anybody's kids rebelling. These are the prospects for all God's promises. The Christ's line is hanging in the balance. 
See, in this book, which is now about King David and his fall, what this episode does is to force us to ask this question. God promised an everlasting kingdom to come from David's children. How? How is David's line ever going to become an everlasting kingdom now? This short story should have us puzzled. David's sons are incestuous, raping murderers. How is any son of David going to be an everlasting kingdom and a king? What hope is there for humanity? Now, David's kids are like this. And that's the tension this episode should leave us in. How is one of David's sons going to avoid sin, leading to more sin, leading to more sin, leading to more? Sometimes I think we forget. It took a millennium to get from here to King Jesus. Imagine living under kings like this for centuries until 10 centuries later, finally King Jesus came. It would have been such agony to wait through all the car crashes. The black sun would have felt so black. The dry water would have made us wretch. This text, above all, makes us yearn for the perfection, the beauty of our King Jesus. Only, only, only then will the black sun turn to sunshine and the dry water to quenching our eternal thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not hiding reality from us. Thank you for telling us about what life is really like. And, how, and thank you for helping us feel the horror of sin and the pain of living under false kings and the black sun that that would have felt like. We pray that we would wrestle with what you have said to us today. Help us in your kindness recoil at sin. Help us run a mile from it. Help us take such care with each other. Help us love each other. And help us yearn all the more for our true King, the Lord Jesus. For your glory we pray. Amen.